I could relapse in two seconds right now. This is like holding a gun to your head. Do you see this? Wait, what is that? Oh, that's the compressed air for your Dust what off. for your computer? Dust off. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's not for the computer. It's for everyone something was else. everyone was obsessed with the girl who was addicted to that stuff. Uh, oh yeah, my strange addiction. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I wouldn't. Once got in trouble for at Maximum Rock and Roll, I did. They had ordered like a four pack of Dust Off oh, no. uh, for the computers, and I did all of them in a day. Like, because I, I had a key, and I just w- I went there to review some records, and I I did their entire you stock just of Dust Off. Yeah, I mean, what else are you gonna do? You can't. Smoke I don't it. know. I'd shoot Dust Off if I could, but no, you can. You just you just huff it. Um, have you done it? No. Never in your life have you in, uh, inhaled Dust Off. I'm not very dusty. <laughs> I do I do love dust off. I gotta what does say. it do? It's, it gets you really high temper. It's like the crack of well, like whippets. poppers. It's it's like it's it's office whippets. whippets. It's office whippets. whippets. Yeah, whippets are if you work at a cafe. Office whippets. It's office whippets. Yeah, um, I've I've never worked in an office or a cafe, but I've done a lot of whippets and dust off. It's like poppers, hmm. you know. It, uh, it's not. Yeah. Anyways, um, dust off is what straight people do during sex. <laughs> Hello. 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 Oh no! I thought we were gonna do it at the same time. Hello. 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 Welcome. Everyone. Oh, oh, what? You thought we were gonna? You thought we were gonna do everyone? I don't do everyone. I know. I thought I we were just hello. like looking at each other and doing a thing, but I don't think. No, I'm looking at, at myself. I don't have the notes up anymore, so I'm making eye contact. What? With my, Why are you looking at yourself? You should be looking at me. Okay. Well, now I am. No, that's weird. Don't Hello. Look at me. Don't look Liz. at me. My Hi, name. everyone. Hello. Hi. Welcome. I'm Liz. Okay. I'm Bryce. We're joined by producer Young Chomsky. The podcast is called True Anon. Hello, everyone. You're so low energy, Bryce. What's going on? Did dust off. No, you No, didn't. I don't know. We just did a fucking long ass interview. What do you expect me to be bouncing off know, the walls? I don't know, because you're like, hello, everyone. Welcome Bitch, to True I drank Anon. a fucking San Pellegrino two hours my ago, name is and now Grace. the- No, my name it's... is Liz. Get it? It's a joke. Hello, welcome uh, to Trunon. I don't. I I drank a fucking, fucking San Pellegrino. Up, bitch, I don't want to. I just called you bitch twice. I'm sorry. <laughs> now you see what happens when you get. Why no, are you drinking San Pellegrino? Fucking, now I I don't know, man. Because I was like, this seems like it's I, it's really hot in my apartment, and this seems like it would be thirst quenching, but it just made me really hyper, and then I got tired. Oh, it's soda. You can't quench a thirst. It's not soda. fucking soda. I thought it was juice. It says real juice on it. It says soda nowhere on it. No, it's I didn't soda know with juice. I don't drink it that often. I can't remember the last time I had it. Now I'm all I'm crashed from it. All right. Well, plus I'm sweaty. Listen. <laughs> Listen, Liz, you look you look great. That's my arm. No, it's not. <laughs> That's my arm. That's me fucking touching my arm. Such a liar. It's so yeah. Listen, <laughs> that's my fucking arm. <laughs> it's awful. I'm wringing out my arm hair. Oh my god. Uh, what are we doing today? Oh, you did. You mentioned we had a long ass interview. We did have a long ass interview. That is very good. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it very much. Huh, you know what? funny you say it was very good because we interview Aaron Good. No, that's nice. 
Oh, you were going to say something else there? Well, I was going to say what we were talking about, but... They're going to listen to the... What, are they going to turn it off now? I you don't got to tell them. This intro sucks, so they might. Okay, well, uh, let's say, uh, uh, listen, you think this intro sucks. I drank a San Pellegrino before the interview. It's a great interview. No, we, we got Aaron Good on. He, it's a fantastic interview. We're doing a little Deep State 101. We're talking about what's the deep state? What's the regular state? What's parapolitical? What's deep political? We go into all of that. It's a fantastic yeah. interview. What are they? Yeah, what are they up to? Yeah, what's going on in there? Welcome to the main event, ladies and gentlemen. We have with us here in the Terror Dome, Aaron Good, which is a just a fantastic name to say. Also, very difficult to Google because there's a lot of sports players, etc., named Aaron, who people have high opinions of. Uh, he is a scholar of state criminality and U.S. imperialism, and he is here today with us for a little Deep State 101. Aaron, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. It's great to be here with you guys, and uh, this should be fun. Yeah, thanks so much for coming. So I think that we want to start this off as kind of, you know, like Bray said, a little intro. We um, we talk, you know, very generally uh, about the quote unquote deep state. And that term has been um, out in, I don't know, popular. I mean, thanks to QAnon too, which we can get into, but really out in like popular discourse in a way that... Um, you know, almost it, it, it's so it's so it's become so broad and diffuse that it's almost lost all meaning. And I think we kind of want to use this time with you to kind of uh, drill home and break down exactly what we mean when we use that term, what it gets right, what it gets wrong, where it comes from, and kind of maybe what are better ways to think of the way uh, that U.S. power is um, situated, both like, you know, I guess you would say publicly and then privately. Right. Well, the idea of a deep state evolved in the way that it's been written about in the West, especially with the kind of pioneering work of Peter Del Scott and Ola Tanander, um, is, you know, is to say that the government that we think of as being uh, what we're taught in, uh, in school uh, about in government classes, civics classes, that this is not really how it works and that there's a more permanent kind of power structure in place that's, you know, connected to uh, other apparatuses within the state that are partially visible sometimes and then sometimes not visible. And so it's, it's, it arises out of uh, observations about events in history that are, that don't have, that are not easily explained by conventional understandings of politics. So when, when Peter Dale Scott started to researching these matters in the 1970s in the wake of uh, the, you know, the Pentagon Papers being released mm -hmm. and U.S. and Vietnam, mm -hmm. he looked so much at the intelligence agencies and all these things that the CIA w was up to. And he came to the conclusion, like a lot of other people, that democracy, you know, as we understand it, can't exactly deal with the state having the ability to secretly carry out policies, often criminal policies, and to make things happen that it denies happened. And so mm -hmm. uh, the definition for parapolitics Peter came up with in 1972 was a system or practice of politics in which accountability is consciously diminished. Just meaning that, I mean, covert operations are the perfect example where 
you hire a bunch of people in Iran to organize mobs, and some of them will even dress up as communists, even though they're Islamist terrorists, and they'll set off bombings in order to uh, discredit the left and allow the military to take more action and overthrow a government and put in a dictator that will do what you want with the oil, right? Like that you're basically having policies carried out that the U.S. public has never approved, probably wouldn't approve. And uh, so how can you have democracy where the people are supposedly sovereign and making informed decisions about politicians when they don't even know the policies? Mm. And these are not policies that are unimportant or insignificant. They are historically significant, changing the uh, destiny of countries, you know, decades uh, up to the present. Um, and so parapolitics was his way of trying to deal with these matters. And Peter really is the, the, the scholar who's done the most work on that, Peter Del Scott. Now, and through the 80s, he wrote a lot about Iran-Contra. He was even on some like documentaries with like Bill Moyers and other people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. And he even was on uh, John Kerry's uh, committee that was investigating BCCI. Oh, uh, that's right. Back I in did the day. know that. Yeah. And uh, so he he did a he did all of this work on the Contras and drug trafficking, and that goes in the 70s. He did things on the drug traffic in Southeast Asia. He and Alfred McCoy. Uh, McCoy wrote the most respectable, uh, academically respectable book on the CIA and drug trafficking, The Politics of Heroin, which has had three yeah, editions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they used to be good friends. Um, uh, I mean, they, they still are friendly, but they even did work together. There's that, I don't know if you ever heard that story where they go and meet a guy who used to, was involved in the drug traffic in Laos and they show up at his house to interview him and he says, oh, I can't interview you because somebody had been wiretapping them, presumably, and heard that he, that they were going to be that, that people were going to be asking him questions about the drugs. Mm. And so they used some sort of implosive device to burn a hole clean through the door of his car <laughs> without burning the floorboards. That is, that is not, that is a fair warning. I guess if that happened to me, I mean, I'd have to know how to drive, but if that would happen <laughs> to me with some kind of door, bathroom door, apartment door, et cetera, I would, I would be sufficiently warned. Yeah. And as a, as a funny aside about the way that, we, our minds work when confronted with this kind of thing. Peter actually forgot about that incident for like uh, 10 years or so. And so did Alfred McCoy. It wasn't until he started to write this poem about uh, in a, in, as a way of dealing with some depression in the eighties that it somehow he had this repressed memory. And then he called Alfred McCoy and he said, do you remember this? And Alfred McCoy said, yeah, I did. And I also <laughs> forgot about it because I guess it was, they drove an hour to this guy's house and it was just suddenly there's this, they're encountered with something that is, uh, representative of some kind of systemic evil and they actually just blocked it out of their minds i guess drove, yeah. drove an hour back home and thought well we, we didn't get to ask him any of our questions <laughs> yeah 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 right? and then they just forgot about it i would say that seems crazy right <sighs> so he was doing work on this stuff all through the 80s wrote uh the book cocaine politics yeah. with jonathan marshall about the contras he wrote books on the kennedy assassination he in the early 90s he released deep politics and the death of jfk yeah and, and at that point, he takes parapolitics to another uh, evolution, and he starts to write about deep politics, okay, which is, uh, he, he defines it throughout his books, but he, he says that it's all of those political practices and arrangements, deliberate or not, which are usually repressed rather than acknowledged. Mm. And, and he said that America had a deep political system alongside the political system that we think that we have. Okay, so it's not that there's no such thing as as elections and elected officials and a government and a public state, but that there's also this deep political system alongside it, 
And he, he described that as a system in which governance entails habitual resort to decision-making and enforcement procedures outside as well as inside those publicly sanctioned by law and society, i.e. a system of governance that includes collusive secrecy and law-breaking. Mm. Yeah, this idea of the secret seems to be very central to um, like uh, kind of like centers of power and deep power. It's almost like where the secret is, is where that kind of power lies. Do you know what I'm saying? And like, it, it's, it's where um, it, it seems to be a, a big, like kind of foundational part of the kind of like uh, systems of, of deep power within the US state. Yeah, absolutely. And if if you listen to Peter or talk to Peter, you might hear him say that he really considers himself as building in the tradition of C. Wright Mills. If you've ever read C. Wright Mills, mm -hmm. um, I would really recommend going back and reading The Power Elite, which was published in 1956. And there's not too many books published in 1956 that I would say are really brilliant in terms of understanding <laughs> politics and yeah, society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that book is, it's more true to, it's more self-evidently true today than it was back then. It's, I have a whole section of it in my, on my dissertation where I, I yeah, talk about it. David Talbot's book about the Dulles brothers. I mean, he is, he is a, I, I think maybe overly long kind of aside about a C, not only C. Wright Mills, but about that book in particular. Well, if you think his is overly long, then um, I don't know how you'll describe mine because <laughs> I go on for them for about like 17 pages. But, but he was so um, – his prose is good for one thing, which yeah. uh, for a social scientist is almost like unbelievable. And uh, he, But he's, he is so able to capture the corruption that is sort of systemic in our institutions all the way back in, in the 1950s when most people were thinking that this is a golden age that we're living in. He said – you know, most of these people in America are, are not, you know, they know that important decisions are being made and that they're not making them and that they're made, the, the way that America has emerged in this global role has created enormous power wielded by the people at the top of the business world, the military and the political system, and that they're all basically interchangeable and they're all working, you know, more or less towards the same ends and they operate in secrecy such that we don't even really understand the sources of big decisions that are being made. And um, we need to, con co to confront this. Uh, and, and so he, and he wrote a lot of things like he, that was before any of those exposés on the 1960s or on the, on the CIA started to come out in the 1960s yeah, and yeah, 70s yeah. and more, especially after Watergate. But what he was, he, he wrestled with this idea of all of history as conspiracy and all of history as just drift and was saying that it, it can't be, it's not that clear. You have, you know, structural systemic forces that had that impact the way that history unfolds, but you also have um, people who do have power and the power available to elites is dependent upon the structure of their society and the technology and material resources at their disposal. And these people have more. He called them commanders of power unequaled in human history. And it was true in the 1950s. And it was true now. It's even more true now. Um, mm. So this, this, but that was not the direction social science went into. The people that actually started to deal with information and revelations about the state that came out in the 60s and 70s, because Mills died uh, before JFK was assassinated in like 1962 or 63. And uh, political science went and social science went in a totally different direction, in part because people like C. Wright Mills were not, even though he was the most famous social scientist in America, he wanted to do a follow-up to the power elite. So he applied for a big grant from the Ford Foundation. 
and you have the most prominent social scientist asking for a grant to do some research, and they say no. Yeah, wow. totally. <laughs> Ford Foundation, that makes a little bit of sense. Yeah, but yeah, which eventually gets exposed as a as a CIA cutout, uh, oh, you know, yeah. all throughout Europe and the US. It's a conduit for CIA funds, so of course they're going to manipulate social science. Ola Tunander has a good quote about that with the kind of the problem inherent to liberal political science. Um I think it's I have it liberal political science has been turned into an ideology of the deep state because undisputable evidence for the deep state is brushed away as pure fantasy or conspiracy. Thus the problem with liberalism in political science and legal theory is not its ambition to defend the public sphere, uh political freedoms and human rights, but rather its claim that these freedoms and rights depend on the Western system. And so it's like the you're right to point out um that you know, even as these things in the 60s and 70s, these revelations, um, I feel like, you know, just as an aside, it seems like throughout the 20th century, there's been kind of like, um, you know, I don't want to say like a ruptures or whatever, but there's been moments where this stuff has been a lot, uh, a lot clearer, or it seems like there's been moments where it's shown its face a lot more. Yeah, brushes, brushes sort of towards the surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, that's definitely a moment in the 60s. I would say, and in the 70s. And, um, you know, at that time, like you say, the social sciences in their, you know, they're gaining so much momentum, so much funding. And there's a reason that all of that, all of that energy gets funneled away into its, you know, state legitimation projects, basically. Yeah, I think state legitimation project is as good a description of the discipline of political science yeah. today. <laughs> as I could come up with in just a few words. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, there are more open-minded people than you would guess. I was able to get a dissertation committee put together of, of people who uh, have respect for pluralism and these ideals, even though they are people who have risen in this uh, system by, you know, not being too unconventional. So there's the individuals might be more open-minded, but the journals and such are, uh, you know, in the big universities, they uh, are very much of the, they're, they're pillars of the establishment. I mean, the, the academy is a pillar of the establishment, and that's the way it's always, you know, been, I think, probably in any civilization. Uh, but there was a, a opening, it was more open from the 30s through the 60s. In many ways, and it starts to in the eight, in the seventies and eighties sort of close down and and become more rigid um, as as time went on. So, when people talk about the deep state, like what literally are they talking about in the in the in the uh, American context or just in the general context? Well, that would depend on which people, which True. they yeah. were referring yes. to. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. When QAnon adherents talk about the deep state, <laughs> they're talking about something that seems to have been taken from a really bad low budget uh thriller or horror movie or something that doesn't really correspond to uh to reality too much the uh, the way that it first entered the discussion cuz so so Peter Dale Scott comes up with this idea of deep politics mm -hmm. and then independently this other term comes out which is the deep state and that comes out of uh Turkey where mm. there's something called like Darren Deslit or something like Turkish isn't very good, but I think that's the term, but it's Devlin, it maybe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that, um, something like that. And it translates to deep state. And it was a reference to, uh, some, a number of intrigues and scandals in Turkey that, and coups and so on that were, that didn't really, 
create any sort of coherent narrative about the cause of it. But then suddenly there's a car crash in this place called Susserlich, and you have like uh, the head of the Grey Wolves terror mm-hmm. organization and the what, the top police chief in Turkey and a beauty queen. And they're like people that shouldn't have been together. It would be like if um, Brzezinski and Cheney and Britney Spears and Osama bin Laden got in a car wreck together, yeah. right? And you're yeah. just like, wait a second. That, Greatest dinner this, party ever. Yeah. This car wreck does not fit into my conception of <laughs> political reality. And so it needs my ideas need to be revised, right? So then this concept of the Turkish deep state came out. Now, the Turkish deep state was more or less a subsidiary of the U.S. deep state. It was connected to those Gladio operations, um, you know, similar to like what they did in Italy with the Propaganda Due Lodge that involved, invited, involved all of these uh, different uh, elites in and out of the security state and, and the business world and so on to perpetrate all sorts of, you know, mischief for political purposes. So even that deep state was kind of, you know, an American production and had a lot to do with like the interests of the U.S. and NATO and, and well, so on. Well, certainly it, it came out because there was even before that, you could say that like certain sections of like the army and the bureaucracy within like the Turkish government constituted, you know, it's it's one of those states where the army has a lot of independence, we'll, we'll say, uh, you know, less civilian oversight than, than, than many other, I guess, uh, you know, similar nations uh, but but it's really exactly like when 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 gladio funds get to uh to turkey and those stay behind organizations are set up specifically with the gray wolves um that that stuff really becomes apparent i mean it it, it is even just just people i know from turkey and uh specifically from some more um active regions of turkey you know still talk about the deep state like you know it it's not it's not sort of it doesn't have the same connotations it has here it's like a perfectly valid term for people to use there right and uh the turkish deep state i think has evolved there's been all of those different coups and scandals and that like yeah movie and the gulen thing the gulen thing is a perfect example of it because that guy is uh, pretty clearly, it seems the CIA cut out of sorts. Who really? I don't think it's ever been fully exposed what he's he's been up to. But charter yeah. schools and <laughs> yeah, jihad. I, I love that he's like also. the yeah. the like you know it's like the greatest Turkish dissident who just really fucking loves charter schools. It's yeah. like so weird. <laughs> well, the the thing the thing about uh, with Turkey too is that like you're right, heroin smuggling plays a huge part in it. Um, because there are very lucrative, not only smuggling routes, but, you know, basically ways to get heroin from other parts of Asia. Yeah, smuggling routes, essentially, um, that go through the territory of the Turkish government's enemies, which were the, the PKK militias in, in the 80s. I mean, still are, but especially then. And so it was also like, not only did you have the, the these these right-wing terror organizations, but you also had straight-up mafias involved in this, just like in Italy and, and just like in America, too. Yes, that aspect is very important. Uh, the last thing I'll say about the turkey and the heroin is that, or the turkey, about turkey and heroin, is that uh, Turkish heroin and the U.S. establishment go way back. Like um, those, those, the Boston, the elites in Boston, like the Cabot Lodges, the Cabot yeah. family, uh, Delano Roosevelt's, the Delano side of Roosevelt's family, the Forbes mm. family, uh, Russell Trading Company, they were, they made all their money in trafficking Turkish heroin and selling it to China because of the, the 
British were only allowed to sell like Indian opium for for some reason. So there was some weird Keep it British region that it created an area for the for enterprising Americans to go. You got to get on that Anatolian white. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'm not the one to, to be grading different uh, brands of heroin, but they did make a lot of money there. That's how the, the earliest like uh, the textile mills in the U.S. were funded by heroin money. Mm. All of Yale is the Russell Trading Company as heroin money. Big parts of Princeton also. Uh, her- you know, heroin or opium money. It wasn't heroin. That's the coolest um, thing I've heard about the IVs in so long. Mm-hmm. The IV League. Yeah, Sorry, we, we can edit that out. It was <laughs> oh dear. We should not edit bad. that out. It was funny. <laughs> okay, so the the Turkish the Turkish deep state aspect of it. So and the, and the mafia part of it. The mafia mm-hmm. is a part of what Peter writes about. Just in, when he was talking, even just about deep politics, he was yeah. saying, "Look at these places like Chicago. In Chicago, there's thousands of unsolved." murders in the like 1920s and 30s and it shows that this is very the, the mafia organized you, you don't just have the government that we learn about with city council and congress here <laughs> in one sphere and then over here there's this bad area where the people are selling drugs and such and and they're doing bad things like these the the systems are much more intertwined in, in a way that just is not, you know, presented to people when they study politics and history. I think the best, one of the better um, depictions of this is uh, Scorsese's Boardwalk Empire, where mm. it's like the main character, Buscemi, is, is really like a guy in the deep political system there where he's like, is he a politician? Is he, a, a, you know, a mobster? And he's involved with all these other different figures throughout. And, uh, you know, I think that... That's that. If you watch the entire thing, uh, it it, it kind of goes over that arc of like it's really an, a, a sort of meditation on deep politics in some ways, uh, the deep politics of that particular time period, which was done more on an ad hoc sort of uh, informal. Well, I mean, it's always informal, but like it, it was a less systemic kind of a thing, I think, because the the U.S. and the world were slightly different. It was more of a bunch of different ar- arrangements, a deep political system, like Peter Dale Scott says so but i make the argument in my dissertation that the deep state kind of evolves after um the after world war ii the u.s assumes a role of global hegemony over capitalism and mm-hmm. the capitalist uh areas of the world and that the in, these intelligence agencies are so empowered and they're connected to often organized crime and different uh illicit economies as well that what was a deep political system becomes more or less part of the state in some way that has not really been perfectly defined by political science. And that was what I was trying to do. So Peter started to read about the deep state and he read Ola Tanander's work. Ola Tanander's at like the Peace Research Institute in Oslo with, uh, that was founded by Johan Galtung, basically the creator of the peace studies of peace studies as a discipline. And Peter Del Scott himself established the first U.S. peace studies program at Berkeley, which I think is now defunct, sadly. But this was, you know, I think a great accomplishment. Um, so when he read more of Ola Tanander and, and applied it to his own thinking, he st- he came to think more that there that there was more to this and that there was a deep state, which um, he defined uh, in different in different ways uh, throughout his work. And he's sort of been working on revising that. And I've actually been communicating with him about an attempt to revise it further. Um, mm. I took what that, that I took what he did and said that you needed to think of it in a tripartite sort of system that you have this 
um, national security state with the bureaucracies that we understand yep. and that have been, you know, designed by Congress and created by legislative, you know, legislative action and so on. You have the public state of like democratically elected officials and so on. You have some transparency there, but this deep state has has emerged between the overworld of private wealth, the the underworld, and the national security institutions that sort of that mediate between them, and that they're dedicated to U.S. hegemony, U.S. imperialism, uh, and operating in a way that is not that makes them more or less immune from democratic. Uh, checks and balances. And so when people are saying this, when you're asking what do people mean when they say it, well, the Trump thing, I think, is like, this is not the way to look at it. But the most generic answer, which I is that uh, the deep state is the very, can be, is the various institutions that collectively exercise undemocratic power over state and society. Um, and not that it's a monolith because it's pluralistic. There are different competing factions in it. And some oh, yeah. of the times that more interesting things come out or are exposed is when there is some conflict in the establishment, mm. especially Watergate. Watergate is very significant. Cowboy in that Yankee way. War. It, right. And, and there's another person who was, who, who was well known. And as a thinker, he was an SDS, Carl Oglesby, who wrote the Yankee yeah. Cowboy War. Yeah. And there's a lot it's of. It's a really, really good book to those who are. We're listening. Yeah, it's it's very interesting and very easy to read. Uh, he was with SDS, part of the New Left, and then as you know, realizing that all the the best leaders had been killed, and that Watergate also had connections to some of these assassinations, especially the Kennedy assassination. He came up with the idea of a Yankee Cowboy War, which is a sort of Eastern East Coast establishment connected to the Ivy Leagues and so on that were you know prominent in American politics. And then the cowboys who were these Sunbelt or Texas oil men and weapons contractors who were a little bit more uh, freewheeling and belligerent and that they fought a war. Now, I don't think his analysis is completely that it holds up you know perfectly well today. Or, I mean, looking back at it now, I don't think his description of Watergate and the Kennedy assassination is exactly that. It's not that, quite that simple. But he was what he was writing was in many ways on point that there was some some conflict there uh, about about this about the, at the top of the American establishment and that Watergate yeah, was a conflict over this and the the thing that's notable about Watergate and I write about this more in my book and when this does get published I'd be happy to come back and talk more in detail about it because it's quite um, uh, interesting I found Watergate to be but mm -hmm. if you just stop step back and look at what happens in Watergate. It's, it looks like a victory for liberals, right? Nixon goes down. The, the, the Pentagon Papers expose the lies of Vietnam. Vietnam gets wound down and so on. So it would seem like some sort of victory for liberals. But the end effect of it, of it all is that both political parties move far to the right. Mm. The Demo like the Rockefeller Republicans basically become Democrats, the Democratic Party. They leave the Republican Party. Gerald Ford drops Nelson Rockefeller as his running mate even. And the Republicans are Reagan, you know, the defense industry, Wall Street, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you, you don't have any, you don't, no party is a home to like the John Kennedy type of liberals, George McGovern type of liberals anymore. They're basically beginning in the 80s pushed out of having any claim yeah. uh, or, or uh, any control of power in, in the U.S. And so the Watergate story needs to take that into account. And I, I tried to uh, come up with some explanations as to how that all happened. Well, I, I think we get a really simplistic narrative of the, I mean, I know that we get a really simplistic narrative of the Watergate story sort of fed to us through popular histories, which is that Nixon was a criminal 
he was trying to sabotage the Democratic Party through criminal means, through this like bunch of goons he sort of assembled through, and it's kind of glossed over how he assembled. And, and there's no real like look back at it. And certainly, I mean, when I was learning about it growing up, definitely no links to the Kennedy assassination or anything like that. But it's all part of the same continuum. Right. And some of the same actors were involved. Frank right, Sturgis. Like literally the same. Howard Hunt. Yeah, Howard Hunt's with the Kennedys thing is weird, but he had that strange confession, and I, I'm not – Peter Dale Scott uh, believes, and I kind of agree with him, that he was sort of put out there as a, a, a as a distraction in some ways, Hunt was. Mm-hmm. Um, but Frank Sturgis was one of the Watergate burglars, and he was uh, involved with the very first misinformation or disinformation following the Kennedy assassination, like, you know, like later that day or the next couple of days, from a Cuban organization he was working with trying to link it link the assassination to Castro because these organizations had been, had run-ins with Oswald and so on. And so Sturgis was in, involved in that milieu. And he even said in, in, uh, from jail that, and I, he's disreputable. So you can't think anything he says is reliable. Well, all these guys are. <laughs> but he said that the, that we broke into the Watergate to see if they had any sort of information on the Kennedy assassination. So he's a liar, and I'm not saying like, <laughs> aha, that solves it, because I don't really think I I don't believe him on this case. That, but like in, in this instance, but the fact that he was involved in those different episodes is is interesting. Um, and the way that it the way that it played out moved America pretty far to the right, and and really consolidated what I think is in the 80s with Reagan that consolidated a tripartite state system where we have this sort of blob. And that's, that's another aspect of it. The deep state can refer to all those institutions that allow for top-down undemocratic rule, right? Yeah. In that way, that's sort of similar to saying the establishment, okay? Mm. So that would be one way, way to think of the deep state and have it be a reasonable, useful concept. Another way would be when you mean more like specific organizations or entities or milieus who are able to act decisively and opaquely to uh, affect political events. And here you have institutions like uh, the CIA's connection to organized crime, the Mm -hmm. CIA's connections to other intelligence agencies over which the public can't possibly expect to have any oversight. Not that they even have much oversight over the CIA, but like when the CIA creates intelligence agencies like they did in Brazil or like they did in Iran or with Saudi Arabia, you know, their intelligence agencies that are often, you know, cutouts for the, for the um, safari club. Yes, or Safari Club in this in that case where they said we're gonna sh- we gotta dial down these uh, covert operations and state cur- you know this these criminal <laughs> activities and so these really wealthy people connected to the intelligence agencies in, in other countries just they just create their own CIA to so that they can do this stuff and the CIA the Safari Club can't be thought of as part of the U.S. national security state it wasn't created by any act of Congress wasn't given public sanction it's certainly not part of the public state. But it's part of this U.S. hegemonic apparatus. And, uh, you know, uh, add to that uh, the fact that they outsource intelligence operations to private corporations. Mm. That's totally opaque. You have no idea. SAIC, Booz Allen Hamilton, right. you mm-hmm. know, like sort of, they're like uh, sort of scarier modern versions of like the Pinkertons, you know. The Pinkertons yes. are sort of like what the FBI, they're like what the, F- like the FBI before the FBI. Uh, yeah. Or something oh, they're like still that, around right? though. Yeah, I don't know what they're doing now, but it's, I don't know if it's they... lower grade stuff. It's just like union busting. Yeah, I can believe that. And, and so this um, it, this change in the in the eighties really consolidates deep 
political power into uh, a, a sort of more institutionalized force in the in the U.S. And so if you people want to understand the deep state, like, well, what's an example of, of the deep state today? Well, you know, uh, Joe Biden just said he's not going to recognize Maduro. He's still pro Guaido. OK, yeah. Like, oh, gosh, that's what an interesting, you know, coincidence. He has the same policy as Donald Trump, right? There's like some sort of imperial hive mind that makes these decisions. And if you're going to go against him, uh, it's very difficult for you. Like Obama said he was going to pull out of Afghanistan, did not do so. Trump said the same thing, did not do so. Uh, And then if you notice, the only time the media really liked Trump was when he was illegally bombing Syria after, you know, an alleged chemical weapons attack that seems very mysterious and, uh, you know, not quite as clear cut as we were told. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, this is, uh, this is the, this is the deep state, this sort of permanent inst- apparatus. Some people call it the blob, the foreign policy blob, yeah. or they like the blob, they put that on the nation. But, uh, you know, more people are just gonna, are, are saying, talking about the deep state. I heard Lawrence Wilkerson saying, talking about it, saying this, that this concentration of wealth, uh, that that the deep state sort of has fostered and maintains is is a huge threat to democracy, and we got to really be worried about what they're going to do in response to coronavirus. This great reset. It just seems like they don't need the workers. And Lawrence Wilkerson said, "I mean, this I'm paraphrasing here, but this is about what he said on the analysis uh, news site with Paul Jay. He said, you know, they're just gonna they're just gonna like somehow have some coronavirus come and just get rid of all these workers that they don't need anymore, right?" Now, I'm not endorsing that that <laughs> statement, but that's a guy who worked for right under Colin Powell uh, yeah. and uh, is not a Trump person. He's anti-Trump. He was on part of that group that was there to make sure Trump didn't steal the election even. So he's a guy with connections to the establishment. And even he's saying, my God, these, these bankers and the, the mm. deep state are really maintain, making it hard for any sort of political reforms. Bankers, I want to pause there for a second because I think too that with the proliferation of QAnon's concept of the deep state, that you know a lot of times like private wealth somehow escapes a lot of these conversations. I think too also maybe with so much that happened under the Obama admin with the NSA and all the Snowden revelations that really people tend to only think of the agencies or they first think of the agencies when they think of something like the deep state and they you kind of forget but there's a lot of like private capital like that line between private state i mean it's like very very porous and i mean we've talked a little bit on the show about like the carlisle group for example you mentioned the ford foundation you can think of them as cutouts they are cutouts but they're also i mean it's like there's like a back and forth there right absolutely and they i mean the CIA, you can't think of it as being separate from the uh, politico-economic elites of the U.S., i.e. the corporate rich. The CIA was created at the behest of bank- Wall Street, uh, Wall Street bankers, Wall Street lawyers. I mean, uh, exactly. From- it, it, it's the perfect. It's the perfect combination of white shoe law firms and the people that they represent on Wall Street. Exactly, and that explains why they do what they do. I mean, it was at the it was at the Council on Foreign Relations where they first started to talk about the need to get rid of Mossadegh and Arbenz uh, mm-hmm. before they do. And 
the, it wasn't quite clear that the CIA would be involved in those operations. At first, they tried to actually pass around a hat, not a literal hat, but like in at a New <laughs> York club where all these rich dudes hang out to like overthrow the government of Mossadegh. But then Alan Dulles, uh, you know, made the, you know, I, I believe he was the sort of point man on this, made it something that would be in the CIA's purview. And that's when they start doing it. And the guy that wrote the famous elastic clause in the National Security Act mm-hmm. of 1947 was Clark Clifford, Wall Street lawyer. And it simply, Truman wanted an intelligence agency to sort of streamline the process and have one um, central intelligence agency that would be dealing with intelligence in a centralized fashion and deliver briefings to him that were digestible for, you know, a president. And so he creates it. And then there's this one sort of throwaway sentence that, and the CIA shall perform duties as determined by the National Security Council from time to time. Yeah, that's become just legal justification for everything. And um, that's not an exact quote, but that's that's close enough. Yeah. And it, it just so think about what they were signing and what Truman signed, just like some other duties. Like if I said, okay, sit tight, I got to go do something. And then I left and came back. Like you wouldn't assume that that something was uh, 9/11. mind control programs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. L, um, sexual blackmail operations right. um, coming up with like darts made of ice that'll give people heart attacks mm-hmm. and be silent when they're shot off and like sterilizing you know, poor women chew people in the congo and throw them in a ditch yeah Drugging recruiting people. mafia people to try to assassinate a leftist leftist leaders and killing jfk mm-hmm. yeah i mean the kennedy assassination the assassinations of the 60s when i wrote my dissertation i, I put those out there as like pretty likely state crimes against democracy and i sort of proceed as though I'm not going to just act like these are mysterious things that we can't quite understand. Yeah. I kind yeah. of made the decision, which was a, you know, a, a courageous and or foolish one in uh, in political science terms. But I wrote about those their involvement in those episodes because to me it, it seemed like a part of the story I was I was trying to tell. When you say the assassinations of the '60s, you mean MLK, JFK, RFK, and Malcolm X as and well. Malcolm X, um, yeah, yeah. The the Netflix thing on Malcolm X is pretty bad. Oh, is there it. one? Yeah, there is, and they say, well, it's it's obvious. It was known to be a conspiracy, and it seems that the people that they put in jail for it were not necessarily even the ones that were involved. But the version that they give is pretty weak, and uh, there's some better articles on it, mm. especially if you go to kennedysandking.com, dot uh, which is run by this Jim Jim Diogenio, who is the who's also the writer for Oliver Stone's new documentary on the Kennedy mm. assassination that's coming out, but they have good articles on there and the King assassination also. I mean, yeah. the King's, the King family, uh, Coretta Scott King asked Bill Clinton, yeah, yeah. you know, pl- with reference to that civil trial th- that found that the assassination was a result of a conspiracy involving Memphis mafia and police and the federal government. She said, Bill Clinton, please, please uh, reopen this. Okay. And that's Coretta Scott King. Who's, you know, a saint in by American yeah. standards. And Bill Clinton's response is no. Yeah. The first time he said no to a woman. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well, um, yeah, he, uh, yeah. So he could have possibly Clinton Poss couldn't possibly have had anything to do with the King assassination. And yet he knows not to go there. You know, I mean, even today, like this is yeah. a taboo subject. Well, how, that how RFK why. knew not to go there with his well, brother. Well, RFK was going to go there. He just wasn't going to until he was elected president. It, that's what is in David Talbot's book, Brothers, that he told confidants that he wanted to 
reinvestigate the assassination as president and that he needed to be elected first. And so he was planning to do that. And he basically believed that it was CIA, uh, um, some CIA officials, mafia, uh, and Cuban exiles that were involved. Um, and he wanted to reinvestigate it. And uh, Garrison knew about his suspicions and told him that he needed to sort of go public with it. But he, but Kennedy never did. If there's a, you can find an interview of Garrison. Well, it's not of Garrison, but it's of Larry King. Remember the CNN guy? Yeah. And, yeah. and he, he had a friendship with Garrison and Garrison, he dropped Garrison off at the airport one day uh, in 1968, in like May of 1968. And Garrison turns and says, they're going to kill Bobby. And then just walks away. And then Bobby gets killed like, you know, weeks later. Um, so he did want to do it. RFK did. And of course, we know what happened to him, which is also a very, you know, interesting case. So there's one concept that kind of comes up a lot in, in writings about this, and, and specifically yours, is the concept of sovereignty. And, and where that lies when we're talking about the deep state. Um, and that, I, I think, is a kind of interesting thing to tease out because, I, 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 you know, obviously the general notion is that sovereignty lies with the people of the U.S. because we elect the government and the government is accountable to us. But obviously, when you get to talking about this sort of thing, you, you sort of one quickly realizes that that's not only not the case, but it, in fact, it's, it's almost the opposite. Yeah, this idea of the sovereign is kind of, uh, it's Hobbesian, you know, like that was Thomas Hobbes writing a lot, you know, around the time of the English Civil War, hundreds of years ago, was saying that you needed to basically accept that the sovereign was going to be the sovereign. And in that case, he meant the king. And his argument was, it's a dangerous world out there. And if we don't have somebody in charge, then it's worse for us. So it's better to just submit to the state and uh, allow the state it's it's power supreme power over life and death because it's a better bargain than the chaos but so the other person in political science terms that's more that's very interested in this issue infamously is carl schmidt the german uh, political theorist and jurist um legal philosopher who said in a pithy way um sovereign is he sovereign is he who decides the exception is the is the phrase and it made the exception means the exception to the rule of law. So it means mm. whoever's in charge is the person who can command the state to do something even when they're not legally authorized to do that. And that there's going to be a sovereign always. And so the sovereign has to decide if there's an emergency in a liberal democracy, a republic or whatever, then the, the, they can never really get rid of that. They need to have the most that they can do is write into law the circumstances under which the law negates itself. And that supreme power is assumed by whoever holds sovereignty. Um, and this was infamously the doctrine that justified what the Nazis did. After the Reichstag fire, they passed the Enabling Act and it cited, mm -hmm. it's an emergency. It's an emergency. The state is at risk. We got to do what's got to be done. And so the elites who had supported Hitler for just this reason uh, empowered him to go out and crush the left, which is really I mean, that's really what fascism is. It's funny to hear people like Tim Snyder talk about fascism and all these liberal uh, yeah, mainstream yeah, yeah, things yeah, that are yeah. saying like, what is fascism? And somehow Tim Snyder leaves out the, you know, crucial uh, sort of quintessential aspect of fascism, which is that fascism is capitalism in crisis. Uh, this was why the fascists rose up. It was, there was either, the situation was so bad, you were going to either have a move towards socialism or you're going to have the iron fist 
Well, Snyder's whole project is linking it with communism. So there you go. Well, or this idea of of totalitarianism. I mean, oh my god, don't get me started on that. Thrown around, (laughs) and what it what it meant was these regimes where no part of civil society could uh, counterbalance against state power, and so people were in a perpetually hopeless political state of subjugation, Mm. right? But of course, the ironic thing is that we talked about the Soviet Union as this totalitarian state, but their civil society did actually, you know, uh, coalesce in such a way as to bring about the end of the Soviet Union. But if you're talking about a society where, a country where no aspect of civil society is really able to, to put a dent in the hegemony yeah, yeah, of, the, yeah, yeah. of the of the ruling elite it's it would seem to be america or academia the the corporate media the silicon valley monopolies uh the democratic process not the, the religion nothing seems to have been able to really affect a change of course uh in the american state and uh so, it, you know, I think Sheldon Wolin, when he called this inverted totalitarianism, there's something to be said for that, even if he mostly repurposes C. Wright Mill's arguments, in my opinion, um, this idea of like, it is sort of totalitarian what we're, we're dealing with. It's just in a very unique way where we still have freedom of speech that we can exercise, although you guys have heard, maybe you've heard rumblings of this, but they're starting to talk about podcasts as I know. places yeah. where there's a, there's unreliable information out there. Maybe we just got to oh, we, go after we, the podcasters next. After, after, after we stop recording, I'll tell you something that's sort of funny. <laughs> <yesterday>. <laughs> it's um, interesting when you talk about the, the concept of sovereignty and, and that kind of Hobbesian notion or the or kind of like a even a monarchist notion. There was a kind of with the with a kind of monarchist concept, the idea of like a twin sovereignty, right? Which actually is very similar in some ways to the liberal like a liberal state deep state in some, in some respect where there was like a physical body of a king. There's this idea that there's this physical body, and but that the actual, I mean, it's similar to, I guess you would say the Catholic Church too, right? That there's this physical manifestation of the sovereign, which is the body of the king, which is the guy who comes in and then he dies and then it's another king or whatever. But that there's this like the body of grace, which is the immortal body, which is the one that kind of continues past the, you know, it is always sovereign and and when the the next kind of mortal body comes in it assumes the body of grace as it takes you know takes the throne or whatever and so it's an interest it's interesting because it seems like there's always been like i don't know if there ever has been a state where there hasn't been a kind of you know separation between a public and a private or a judicial if you want to use the like kind of like schmidian whatever the like judicial versus the extrajudicial or the these the, that kind of um separation yeah these issues of top down rule in countries justified by some sort of system of metaphysics i this gets into real conflicts in civilization that are kind of key to understanding these things like civilization, human civilization. It was kind of nicer in some ways when we just run around like picking berries and hunting woolly mammoths and stuff. Right. Cause there really wasn't the state. Right. But once you have people settle down and you have a division of labor, then you have inequality, social stratification, and people emerge as being on top. And then these civilizations have complex systems 
that are designed to legitimate the power structure. So Plato writes, if you read the Republic, which is kind of annoying to read because he writes it without really saying what he, he's getting at, this is the right winger Leo Strauss argues this. And I think in this case, he's actually correct because it's so dangerous what he's saying that he just uses Socrates as a sock puppet and these other guys, right? But he's saying that, you know, in all societies, it's the same. He has one guy as a troll who says, in all societies, it's the same. Uh, justice is the interest of the powerful. Um, you know, whoever is strong, that's what ju- they determine what justice is, and that's how it works. So he's sort of saying that it's just a function of power, what people think of and accept as reality. And then Socrates comes in and he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. He's saying that, well, you're wrong, but let's make up a city. Let's have the a, a city with a special, you know, unique system. And and some of the people have have golden souls and they get to rule. Others have silver souls and they get to be, you know, military auxiliaries. And then the commoners are, have like iron or something like that. Right. And he's talking about hierarchy and, and a way of legitimizing hierarchy and all these civilizations that have human sacrifices and such, these are just to like glorify and, and sort of uh, sanctify the, the power of, of the state. So there's always, uh, you know, the, the man, the divine right of Kings, this is like an absurd thing, but it's just supposed to justify why the King is the King, right? The King is the King because God wants him to be the King. And if God didn't want him to be the King, he wouldn't be the King. So go out there and, you know, harvest, harvest that wheat or whatever and, and stop. Don't complain or we'll uh, have you drawn and quartered or, uh, you know, in China, it's, it's a similar thing. It's the mandate of heaven where like, if you're the ruler, you're, you're, you're the emperor, you have the mandate of heaven pass it on to your house, you know, that they're your heir. And then if eventually things get really bad and you get overthrown, then it's because you lost the mandate of heaven. It's proof that you, so it's all sort of self, you know, circular ways to justify hierarchy. Um, and the, uh, you know, systems of exploitation and expropriation that civil, that are like uh, inseparable from civilization. Civilization is a story mm-hmm. of exploitation. And if there's no exploitation, then you can't, develop you have to have people that are contributing you know the the barest stuff like food so that other people can you know design airplanes and stuff like that so it's it's always based on getting more from people than they uh, are compensated for and this is a conundrum of civilization that we haven't been able to resolve and the way that yeah. the deep the way that the fast forward to today the way that the deep state sort of operates is maintaining a you know extremely unequal system uh and it has to be done in secret, uh, not completely in the open, because it goes so against the legitimizing myths that we have about openness and liberal democracy and so on. And so if you think of, of most of hum, human civilization as being, uh, you know, d- despotism, people living under some kind of despotism, then like our liberal democracy is like a, you know, a tiny fraction of that amount of time. It's not like, oh man, everything was great and now we have this despotism, you know, like these different democracies such as it was, was always flawed, but we've been living through several decades that have moved in anti-democratic ways uh, that, that don't conform to what our textbooks say should mm. be democracy. And the deep state is a way to try to explain the actual uh, workings of this system. Yeah, in the, in the, in that Ola Tunander uh, essay that that you mentioned, there's there's a quote from Licio Jelly, uh, who was, uh, well, we've mentioned him quite a bit on the show, but he was the head of the P two uh, Masonic Lodge in Italy and a, a big player in Gladio in in Italy's strategy of tension. Um, 
There, there's a quote from him that I hadn't heard before, which he, he says that dictatorship and democracy always march side by side because dictatorship or excuse, democracy is being undermined by dictatorship and dictatorship is being undermined by democracy, adding that we have not yet reached an equilibrium. Um, and I, I think that is a pretty good kind of description about what actually the tension that actually happens here. I will say that I think dictatorship, which I, I don't know necessarily that I would use that, that word specifically, although maybe in Italy, uh, I, I do think that 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 concept is is really useful, sort of that um, that aggressive arrangement between the two and, and the wranglings between the two. I, I think I think cause a lot of the stuff that we see day to day. Yeah, and liberal political theory doesn't have exactly the perfect way to, to conceptualize it. So you, when you're you're saying it's dictatorship isn't exactly the perfect word, maybe like authoritarianism would be more like from a social science way of describing it. Maybe that would be be better. But it's but you're you're right. It's not perfect, but that is similar to what happens. And John Locke, you know, the guy that the English Enlightenment thinker uh, who is kind of forms the basis of a lot of uh, America's constitutional thinking that influenced the founders and so on. He wrote about the emergency also, and he kind of doesn't come to conclusions that are that different from Carl Schmitt, even though he's thought of as like Mr. Mm. Separation of Powers, Mr. Limited Government, you know, and so on. Um, that he, he says, if there's an emergency, then you need, you're going to have to empower uh, the, uh, the head of state to act. And yeah, I, he, he actually hashes out some of the possibilities and says, if there's a tyrannical person abusing this authority, then, you know, only an appeal to heaven, it, it, that's your only resort. And by that, he means revolution. So that idea of a state of emergency, like what Carl Schmidt wrote about and like he refers to, this puts enormous power in the state, in any state. And what happens with the U.S. after World War II is they go for global hegemony and it's legitimized these different systems that are set up in organizations like the CIA um, are set up on the basis of, in part of, and, and empowered especially to carry out, you know, extra legal things on the basis of this existential threat posed by the Soviet Union. Yeah, which which in effect the Soviet Union was they lost twenty six point six million people fighting World War II. They were not a threat to the United States, at least not in any conventional way that in international relations the idea of a threat was understood. Okay, they they uh, function often, in my opinion, as a kind of uh, boogeyman to legitimate policies that the U.S. and U.S. economic elites pursued before world war ii and comfortably replaced with uh with, with jihadist post fall of the soviet union yeah eventually that way and but they don't they still are doing some of the same things i mean you have the there's a coup in honduras because they tried to go after a banana company in like 1912 1913 it's, mm -hmm. it's, it was like a sort of low budget cia coup except there wasn't a cia at the time it was just done yeah. by a banana guy sam zamuri who was later one of the people involved in united fruit now, in 1954, he's involved in the coup in Guatemala in terms of like trying to rally support for it among the elites and such. So, but this time it's, oh, it's communism. It's because of this Cold War. But the policy is the same thing. It's a powerful, you know, fruit company uh, in, in Central America that is aggrieved by a government that's, you know, going to impact its bottom line. And so they overthrow it, put in a, a dictator. And uh, fast forward to like Obama's administration, you know, I mean, or, or mm -hmm. even under Bush, we overthrow Aristide twice. There's no Cold War to justify yeah. that. We just overthrew him twice, you know, um, two different years. See, they, they overthrow him and then 
Actually, no, no. It was the, the both Bush administrations. This is like a family Bush family yeah. tradition is to go stick it to Haiti because they haven't been they haven't had a bad enough. I guess Bush family. Yeah, just I was going to say the Clintons. Really, that's one of their big passions as well. Yeah, I, I would say it's a it's I, I don't I don't think that the uh, I think there's a spiritual element to the American government going after the uh, the Haitians yeah. for so long. Yeah, William William Robinson, the sociologist, said that they had the first successful slave revolution overthrowing a, a Western government, and that the white people who rule the world have uh, never forgiven that. Given yeah, that, yeah, they're never going to forget it. Since. But additionally, if you want to talk about like some deep state shenanigans, like look at Venezuela. I believe it was in like two thousand and nine. Uh, this guy Ramon Guillen de Villa was arrested for plotting to assassinate. Um, Chavez with complicity from uh, actors in the United States. And he was a guy who had been arrested because he brought some stuff into Miami that you were not supposed to, uh, in this case, nine tons of cocaine. And then he gets, he's released because he has some sort of special relationship, but he was a huge cocaine trafficker. And these are the guys we're still, we're still working with in 2009 and there's no cold war to, to justify it. I mean, Christ, I, 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 I might be wrong Although I don't think I am, I believe a Croatian uh, son of Croatian fascist was implicated in a plot to kill Evo Morales. You know, and this and this sounds like something out of the nineteen seventies or something, but this didn't. This happened with I think within the last decade too. Yeah the the networks of organized crime and they they make for you know con- easy convenient people to uh, get to do the things that that need to get done. That whole, st- I mean, that's what's something that's left out of when uh, you've heard the new Cold Wars ramping up. And so they're talking about Xinjiang, China, where there's this genocide that we are told is happening. And uh, I can believe that the Chinese government is taking, you know, a hard line on Islamist terrorism there. But mm. there have been incidents in Xinjiang. And a lot of people, Muslims from Xinjiang, have magically wound up fighting in Syria, attacking Assad alongside other U.S. al-Qaeda frenemies mm. who are well-armed. And then they come back to Xinjiang. Okay, now, what is the mechanism by which somebody in Xinjiang, which is pretty remote, finds himself in Syria? I mean, I, I would have to imagine that the U.S. There's huge and amounts the Saudis, of them in uh, Turkey as well. Uh, yeah. They have a, a exile, like a government exile or just a party in exile that's based in Turkey. That's, that's propped up by the, the Turkish government, which, is, of course, is in NATO. Yeah, and they want to call it like Eastern Turkmenistan or something like that. They're really emphasizing their Turkish, their Turkish ethnicity. But the the thing is, like, um, with so would would the U.S. and if their Saudi allies would they do we think that they might be using these jihadi networks to carry out terror attacks, and then when the Chinese respond to this threat of people jihadi terrorists, you know, and they take a hard you know, line, um, then the U.S. just uses that as PR. Like, oh, look at how terrible they are. Look at how they're disrespecting the rights of the Xinjiang people who we care so much about. But those jihadi networks, like, what are the odds that the U.S. and the Saudis and, you know, the Turks are not using them for geopolitical purposes? You know, I mean, and it doesn't even, Ben Norton writing at the Gray Zone gets skirts, gets close to this, but he doesn't actually, nobody has written that piece yet. I wish somebody would write that and try to look at that because I bet that there's some interesting stuff there about these jihadis in uh, Xinjiang.
So you mentioned the state of exception, and actually, it's funny because I feel like um, everyone, like people, can't stop talking about Carl Schmidt. Like it's not just like academics; it's like the pages of the New Republic, which is a little scary. Kind of like don't want like New Yorker liberals talking about fucking, fucking Carl Schmidt. But putting that aside for a second, um, the state of exception. You said you mentioned that you. You know the U.S. Um, post World War II. Like, how did it come to be that the U.S. just operates kind of under a permanent state of exception, <laughs> which is how it's basically governed since, I guess, nine eleven, right? Or do you think prior to that? Prior to that, and I'll try to explain why. So, my, the article, and also my dissertation, although the dissertation has a different subtitle, but the article that I published in Administration and Society in twenty fifteen, I coined the term to, to explain this, I, I call it exceptionism. And the article and the dissertation are both called American Exception because the state of exception that Carl Schmitt first elucidated uh, gets institutionalized in the United States uh, during the Cold War, that the U.S. is in violation of laws all the time. The CIA carries out things that are illegal all the time. And the common re uh, response to that idea from mainstream political scientists is to say that, well, you know, you're talking about international law, and that doesn't really count because uh, the international right. law is really just sort of informal and it's agreements fake. between people. Yeah, which there's an argument to be made about that having historically been the case. However, in the League United Nations, States, yeah. in the United States, we uh, have the, our Constitution and the Supremacy Clause states that ratified treaties are the highest law in the land, which means that the U.S. is violating the Constitution when it violates treaties that we have ratified, we have ratified the UN Charter. The UN Charter establishes that it is illegal to act aggressively against other nations. So to attack them militarily, to try to overthrow their government, to invade them, uh, and so on, to assassinate their leaders. Those are violations of the UN Charter, which is ratified by the US, and therefore violation of the US Constitution. And it's so routinely violated that, uh, you know, you, I wouldn't even try to guess how many things the U.S. has done that would be considered violations. I mean, it would be, I mean, an, an, huge numbers of them on a weekly basis where we are violating the U.N. Charter. Uh, you know, I mean, the occupation of Syria is totally illegal right now. We're occupying parts of Syria, completely illegal, unless it had been given approval by the United Nations Security Council. That's the only way it can be considered legal. According to the UN Charter, that's why Kofi Annan said about the Iraq War, it's illegal. Okay, he is not William Blum or Noam Chomsky or, or or some other radical. He's a guy who wouldn't be in that position if he wasn't friendly to Americans. And even he, it was so clear cut, he even had to say it's illegal. So this is this exceptionism. I think is something to uh, that that we if if we really want to be looking to move the U.S. in a positive direction. Adherence to, to international law and domestic law would be uh, a big start to, uh, to, to, to moving in, this, in a direction that's more bottom-up, democratic, uh, transparent, uh, and just. I, I think part of that has to probably do with, with the fact that I think all of these sort of international... I mean, Norman Finkelstein, when we interviewed him, we actually didn't talk about this, but this has been one of his, his big things lately, is that he you know, he really is calling on the U.S. to respect, and Israel, or Israel specifically, but you know, by extension also the U.S., to respect international law with, with uh, you know, regarding Palestine. 
But but I, I think for me, just as purely as a layman, I've always seen international law as something as sort of like, uh, it's kind of one of those things that's like opt in or opt out. And like, if you're, if your country has, you know, a high enough GDP or, you know, usually if it's wide enough, you can, you can opt out. But, you know, maybe if you're the Central African Republic or something like that, you, you know, you can't quite afford to opt out. And so I, I, I don't know, like, I, I guess what I'm saying here is that like, it's almost like basically all Western nations are, are sort of in a state of exception or not even just Western nations, but, but most major countries are sort of in a state of exception when it comes to international law, because while the U S is different than a lot of countries in that we like, for instance, ignore the, not even just ignore, but, you know, put sanctions on prosecutors for the international criminal court or something like that. And certainly put a lot of pressure on, on members, on the members of that body. Um, it, it's just one of those things that you can just ignore. Um, which, which is, I, I think, astounding, and, and certainly, you know, basically in line with the whole of the 20th century. And, you know, I mean, like I said, you know, the League of Nations, you know, you want to invade Abyssinia? Well, go fucking go ahead, you know, not, no one can stop you. They'll put sanctions on you for six months and then drop them. Um, and I, I think that really has to just do with, like, it's, it's, it's not in essentially any country's interest to pay attention to these international laws, especially when nobody else does. Well, it, the the main violator of, the, of international law is the United States in terms of just the sheer amount of uh, different violations. China does not violate the sovereignty of other nations. They haven't overthrown any governments. They haven't invaded any uh, other nations, or, or at least it's been quite minimal. They invade Cambodia. They well, invaded North Vietnam. Vietnam. North Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, North yeah, Vietnam yeah. invaded, and they've had skirmishes with with Vietnam also. India, uh, but I mean, it's literally just like fist fights. So I'm not really sure that yeah, rises but, but to the not, level of a nothing, conflict. I mean, nothing on the scale of what the U.S. has done. I mean, the U.S. overthrown Brazilian democracy in '64, and then also more recently with that Dilma Rousseff and yeah. like the whole thing with uh, Lula. That that's the U.S. Obviously, um, they, we overthrew Australia's government in like 1975 yeah, yes, or 76. Yeah. Never recovered. Yeah, and that was with the in, in one of the entities involved with that was the Nugan Hand Bank again yeah. talking about the deep state. Um, well, I would say China in Angola was probably in violation of international law, but kind of everybody was there. That was a, that was a civil war, and uh, you know the details that the Soviets were involved there also. So the, the yeah, details yeah, of that, yeah. I would have to. You, you could be right. I'm not trying to. Put I, well, a white I'm hat saying on, so basically China, everybody but, was there. Yeah, but if you're invited by the the government such as it is then it's a diff like for russia to be in syria they're not violating international law yeah yeah because yeah, they've been yeah. invited to be there the u.s is you know whether you think russia has good motives or not i'm not going to put a white hat on any of these statesmen but or a helmet uh, that's a whole separate <laughs> issue but that that the white helmets which i'm not i don't want to say too I much about gotta, it was about, too easy i had to do yeah, a joke <laughs> if you want to talk about a depth of cynicism that they have sunk to the white helmets this idea of flooding jihadis into a country, taking it over, and then having these guys out there rescue the people that yeah. from the, when the government tries to kick out the jihadis that you've put into their country, and then you you act like like they're heroes and that they're noble. I mean, I you get, you get it's one Oscar. of the most cynical things I've ever seen. Even Aren't as somebody who studies too? this stuff. They're I just bad. I'm no, expecting them to come back for the Biden admin. White helmets is like, over. It's it's like season two now. Like they've kind of been written out of the show. No, they don't really need everyone's in Idlib now. And like the last thing I saw the white helmets is they were literally rescuing a kitten, which who knows how the kitten got there, from a from a telephone pole. So I'm like, if they're doing that, you know, it's that's that's Maybe that's they'll like show your up in Ukraine in a couple of weeks or something. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's there. There, I, I think after that guy uh, was so despondent, their 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 uh, British intelligence linked founder got so depressed uh, over, uh, I'm sure, just the amount of ghoulness he had to see in Turkey that he flung himself out of a third floor mm. window to his death. Um, you know, it, it kind of wrapped up after that. You need yeah, a good it's a weird, director. It's a weird case. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, of course, but there's something very strange about that, his death. Mm. Um, I, I, You're going to throw yourself out of a window. Third floor? That's like 50-50 chance of dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not... <laughs> Well, that's like uh, that's not good i could literally just go to a taller building you could that's jumping out a window that's not falling you know what i mean that's just like you could land on your feet like a cat well if you guys check the cia assassination manual that was made in uh w w at the time of the guatemala operation success in 1954 they, one I of the things they that. say is one of the things they say is you know one way you can kill somebody is to just uh be standing next to a high balcony and just push them over the edge and that has the benefit of you being able to play the frightened bystander. So you can just shove a guy yeah. off, see you later. Oh no, what happened to Johnny? Oh man, somebody help. You know, like that. So, you know, is that what happened there? Who knows? Speaking of people that are either thrown out of uh, balconies or going to be thrown out of balconies, uh, let's talk about sort of your own career in this. We can kind of wrap up with this because, uh, you know, as as listeners might know, you know, in academia, the sort of stuff that you cover, and like, like we've talked about on the show, I mean, we've talked about in this conversation, uh, you know, sort of conspiracy theories or deep politics, parapolitics, these things are not necessarily uh, looked very kindly upon um, by uh, by many of the people who run who run the academic institutions in this uh, in this country. So basically, how did you get interested in this, and why did you decide to throw away uh, any tenure chances that you might have <laughs> should you decide to pursue them uh, in the pursuit of this? Yeah, I, I I I'm not totally resigned to having thrown away any chances, but I That's did. Right. I knew that I was not making a good career move in the conventional sense. Um, I grew up in a household that was democratic. Uh, my mom worked for a democratic congressman in, in Southern Indiana. So I was more to the left than my, my friends in school. I was one of the only people who was like for Dukakis in 1988, um, for example. And so I grew up around politics and around the Ron Contra hearings. I actually remember those from when I was a kid and I think they had some impact. And I majored in political science in college. And my favorite professor was a vaguely liberal guy, but he, you know, made me think more deeply about, you know, America's political history and so on. I went to Taiwan for a year and it was around 2000. Uh, and then Bush stole the election. I came back to the United States. Um, and then right uh, like a week later, 9-11 happens. And that was not, I, I was not happy about that because I thought it was bad that this was happening under Bush and that bad things were going to follow. But I, I didn't, I wasn't, interested i wasn't traumatized by the events because i just didn't want to watch them that day for whatever reason like i i didn't want to watch the media coverage i thought well i'll read about it later but this is not this is not good that this is happening now and then all those flags come out we invade afghanistan we have the iraq war which to me seems so obviously criminal that i almost thought mm -hmm. or actually i did think i did think this has to be derailed before it happens it's so obviously mm -hmm. gangster yeah. but then it happened and then in 2004 I worked for the Democratic National Committee, like a subcontractor of theirs, doing like political canvassing and stuff. 
and uh, hoped that Carrie would win, but was not happy that it was Carrie because he was sort of he was a little more on the main centrist side. In 2008, um, I worked on Barack Obama's campaign, and I moved to New Jersey or not? Sorry, New Jersey, Missouri, um, as a a field organizer there. And I thought I might try to get a job in the White House after that. I went to the inauguration. I went to the inaugural ball, the staff ball, and like Jay-Z, Arcade Fire played for us personally and Obama came out. Well, that's a out. throwback, Jay-Z you and got Arcade to see Fire. Jay-Z. I did. And I, I don't, I'm not a bit huge Jay-Z fan. Me I'm not, either, but I, I mostly, just, I mean, that's cool that you did. Yeah. No, it was cool. And there were these, um, I mean, well, it was just really cool. It, the whole thing was really fun. And I liked the people that I worked with, but I realized already that I was kind of more to the left than them, especially on foreign policy issues. They didn't really seem to have much of an interest in foreign policy. But after Obama got elected and he, you know, kicked all those people out of their homes, but bailed out the bankers and he, the government of Honduras got overthrown and Libya, especially Libya. Mm. It, it, I just felt that this, mm-hmm. there is some sort of permanent apparatus and it made me go back and study more things. I'd seen JFK as a kid and I saw Oliver Stone around 09 or so come out and said, you should read this book, JFK and the Unspeakable. And so I thought, you know, I got, I'm not, I'm underemployed. So I'll read this book. And I read that book on the Kennedy assassination. I thought this is so, the case here, even if you get some of the details wrong, especially about Dallas itself, because it's really complicated and whatever, like the, the evidence about the foreign policy differences and the things that Kennedy was trying to do and that he wasn't able to do and the changes back to mm-hmm. the Eisenhower Dulles consensus with LBJ, it was it just after, was yeah. very clear that there was some sort of thing at work here. And so I just started to read more in that vein. And I contacted Lance DeHaven Smith while I was in the, in this process of just doing all this reading and research on things. And do if you don't, I don't know if you know Lance or not, he was a, he, he was, he's retired now. He's a, a public administration professor at, at Florida state and really prominent in Florida politics and society. At one year, this magazine in Florida said he was the fourth, the, the number four scientist in the whole state of Florida. He was best friends with Ruben Askew, who was um, a, the governor of Florida and uh, he saw the election get stolen in 2000, and he was an expert on Florida politics, and he just thought, this is criminal, and these people are able to break laws. And so he, with impunity, and he developed this concept of state crimes against democracy. And he and a few other scholars went to conferences, and I contacted Lance out of the blue. I just called him, which is a skill that I guess I got from the political thing with Obama. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, 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 yeah. Being like, no hey, is this, yeah. I mean, it was so annoying and I hated doing it. But the one, the greatest thing about that Obama job and why I don't, re- I don't regret it is that it made me realize that you need to, you have to go out there and, and communicate with people and talk to people. And I don't the, the generic term would be networking. And I don't like to, I hate thinking of that way. I had never wanted to go to business school or be any sort of corporate toady thinking like it's networking time scanning the room like who should i be networking with right no but but, but work, working on a political campaign definitely gets you more used to talking to strangers which is a skill that a lot of people don't have yeah yeah and uh so i called lance and i just started talking to him really you know i was really happy that he was taking the time to talk to me and i'd read his papers and he just said he said man i'm he's got lance from georgia he's got a little bit of a draw even more than me being from almost kentucky he said man i'm the i'm like the i'm like the expert in this stuff in, in academia, but you like, you really know this stuff, you know, this stuff that was just as well as me. And I, I started emailing him back and forth. We would just have these long, long email exchanges. Um, he put me in the acknowledgements to his book, um, 
Conspiracy Theory in America, which is published by University of Texas Press, and it actually looks at the way conspiracy theory gets sort of turned into a weaponized idea used to basically discourage people from looking at state crimes against democracy. And he said he made a lot of these other findings about political assassinations and different theories to try to explain this and why public administration can't deal with it. And uh, so I went to grad school. And instead of doing things with people in my department, I went to conferences with Lance and uh, a, a small group of uh, public administration people doing this kind of work. But some of them died, like uh, two of them had heart attacks, Alex Kuzman and Kim Thorne. Matt Witt is still around. He's a great academic and a good friend of Lance's and mine. I stayed with him in L.A. recently. Uh, but then Lance uh, has Parkinson's and he's retired and it's uh, I don't hear from him that much anymore. And uh, Matt doesn't either. It's but he was really fearless. Um, but I got a history teaching job, had a kid and then finished my dissertation and started working with Peter Del Scott a little bit and communicating more with him. And uh, he said, he, you know, he wanted me to work on this book with him. That's his last collection of deep politics essays and such mm -hmm. that he's probably going to publish. Mm -hmm. We did that article together on the Masood assassination. Um, and uh, I just had him at my class show up to a couple of my peace studies classes that I teach here uh, outside of Philadelphia. I had him and Dan Ellsberg because they're really good friends. So and they cool. showed up yeah, to my yeah. students, talked to my students. And Joshua Oppenheimer, the, who directed The Act of Killing, came and... Catherine Gunn came to one recently with Ellsberg and James Galbraith and um, Peter Kuznick. Uh, I've worked with Peter Kuznick, gone to Japan with him. Mm. I, I teach a class that he and Oliver Stone contributed to. And uh, so these people that I've been able to befriend are, are out there trying to, in, their, in different ways, speak out about this sort of imperial uh, behemoth that, that, we're, that we're dealing with. And it's a small group, but uh, a dedicated group. And I ended up way more radical. My mom, who still watches MS, she watches MSNBC now all the time. And I'm just trying to say, Mom, oh, you gotta no. yeah. stop, Mom. The Russians are typical thing with a lot the of Russians. Moms. Yeah, the Russians aren't gonna harm you. The bots aren't coming for you. <laughs> She's not well, really the Russians that bad, did but she shut off the, the power, network. right? Wasn't that like a big thing a couple of years yeah. ago? Oh my yeah. god, do you remember uh, that? That was so crazy. I mean, <laughs> They can just dial up an, a mini 9-11 anytime. They can just anytime. say, intelligence re reports say the Russians just hacked us again. Well, you, know? you know it's going to get worse with Biden's foreign policy team. Yeah. So I'm planning now to like get this book published in one way or another, my dissertation, which uh, I know would be very interesting to you guys. I cover a lot of things. I even go into Epstein and the history of sexual blackmail. There's an angle of Watergate that deals with mm -hmm. that as well. Mm -hmm. I write about BCCI. I write about the Safari Club. Uh, there's a ton in there that uh, whenever it does come out, I'd be happy to come back on and Absolutely. do some yeah, shows on yeah. these. Um, I think that you'll you'll you and your readers will appreciate the book. I might need to be re it might need to be rewritten in less academic terms. Although I try not to be a terrible political mm. science writer, it's <laughs> all listeners like are addicted to Adderall. That's it's fine. <laughs> as long as you don't snort it, I think it's yeah. It's, okay, it's all right? it's, that that's the same with everything. That's the same with all drugs. Yeah, I don't know about that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, just the problem with, uh, you know, the problem with doing illegal drugs is that that makes it, you know, tough for a person of good conscience to bear is that you end up supporting U.S. foreign policy. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Especially exactly. cocaine. Yeah. Especially yeah, yeah, cocaine. Yeah. And you can't really justify it. The most bourgeois well, drug. That's why I had to get sober. It's because I couldn't stand um, supporting. I'm going to start imperial. saying that now. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, no, I got, I got sober because yeah, it's, it's, it's bad. You know, slavery and all that stuff.
Yeah, it's um, just anybody that you see with a crackpot, just tell them, put that down. Yeah. You're supporting <laughs> yeah, U.S. imperialism exactly. every time that you hit that crackpot. Um, in the, the 80s, you know, the war on drugs, Nancy Reagan, the, the, the cosmic joke about all of that is that the Contras were the biggest cocaine traffickers and oh, the Mujahideen yeah. oh, were the biggest heroin traffickers. Yeah. You know, Goldbutton mm-hmm. Hekmatyar. Was the was the world's biggest heroin trafficker at that time? So it's this stuff is. Uh, I love saying that guy's name. It's, it's amazing. It feels very cool to say it. It feels like Go you know button, a lot yeah, more than yeah, you should. Yeah, you yeah, know yeah. I, I think I can spell it. I'm not gonna. Don't ask me to do it now. But I think if I had a whiteboard, I could do it. I can't do it in my head. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been a pleasure. Uh, one quick thing: should, is it okay for us to link to this essay in here? The, I don't think there's a link. I just have a PDF of it. Which the oh, essay, yeah. the American oh, Exception. Oh, the American one. Exception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'll, I'll t- eventually, I think that I'm actually allowed to post that on my own personal website. So mm. but the problem is, I've been so, as soon as I finished my dissertation, I, I had to do virtual teaching, and it's so time intensive. I thought it was the light at the end of the tunnel getting the dissertation done. And then the, the tunnel, I emerge and I go into COVID teaching, virtual teaching. Yeah. So these things that I plan to do, I haven't done. I I can post that essay. You can link to the uh, Covert Action Magazine article. Okay, and you great. can link to the one in a- administration and society, but it's behind a paywall. So yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, thank you so much for joining us, Aaron. It has been a absolute pleasure, and I'm definitely looking forward to uh, reading the dissertation, brother. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I think that you guys are doing very interesting work. And even some of my students have uh, listened to your podcast, which is uh, kind of well, funny to me. So uh, hopefully they listen to cool. this one. If they're listening, was uh, your teacher's cool. <laughs> thank you. I think that endorsement will, will help my cause. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, signing off. That's true or not, baby. No, I don't have any plans. Uh, I do have plans, but I'm not telling you about them. Yeah, I have plans too, but I'm not telling you. I, I know you don't have plans. I do have plans. How can you have plans? You got plans? <laughs> I got so many plans. What are you doing? So text me. Don't, no, you don't have to so say on the show. Just text me. What are you plans. doing? Um, uh, no, I plan on, uh, I'm pacing and I'm going to see... If my neighbor cares if I shoot a hole in the, the wall Ugh, of the apartment. Don't do that. Well, they might not care. Well, I guess you got to find out. It's really hot in here, and I'm sick of opening the windows. Bird oh, can my fly God. In. It's always, it's too hot. It's too cold. It's always too hot. It's never too cold. You never hear me complaining about that. I have a hot apartment. Anyways. That's not true. I've definitely been to your old apartment where you've been like, God, it's so cold in here. Turn the heat on. Yeah. Okay. Well, fine. Anyways, anyways, anyways. Uh, This has been a little fun episode. Yeah, I'm Liz. My name is Brace. We are joined, of course, by producer Young Chomsky. And, ah, caught you up there, huh? You thought I was going to say something else. That and, right? Classic prank. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.